0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: On the last episode of Guilt.
0: They end up there. She was found in the basement there with severe head injuries. Um, He had picked her up and demanded oral free sex or free oral sex she refused he beat around the head with a gun and left her.
2: actually i put it through the window showed them how to hold it against the toggle of the lock i went to hit the lock itself and that's when the prison officer jumped in and said you're not allowed to touch the car
3: and he would just search for years. Walking all the tracks, going off the tracks, it, it just, um, it could just consume them.
2: I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody.
1: They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. Before we start this episode, can I just ask you a quick favour? If you've come this far, then I'm assuming you're enjoying the podcast. A massive amount of effort goes into these investigations and this podcast. This is not like 99% of the podcasts that are made in someone's bedroom at no expense. Investigating these cases costs very real money and time. I'm always on the road, interviewing and researching for months on end. I'd say for every 40 minutes of content, there's at least 50 hours of work. And you might not be aware that you have the ability to help me for free by simply rating the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on with a five-star review. This greatly helps grow the podcast and spread the word at the click of a button. More often than not, people are quick to express criticism, while those that are enjoying something don't say anything. So please, pause this for a second and go hit that five-star review. And one other thing, I never ask for or expect, but if you wanted to show your appreciation for the show with a financial contribution, you can do this by following the link in the description. Again, it's not expected at all, but massively appreciated. Make sure you leave a message with where you're from, I read them all. It's not a donation, but an investment in helping keep these cases alive. Thanks so much. Now, let's get into it. Yes. My name's Ryan. Hi. Was I speaking Hi. to you, was I?
3: Yes.
0: Oh, okay, yes. nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. Today. Ryan. Um, I'll just get you to sign in. Of course. Um, and yesterday I have, um, I've been having a
3: bit of a scrummage oh, and trying see. to get out as much as possible, but unfortunately not everything is catalogued mm-hmm. nor indexed. So I've been having, I've been having mm-hmm. a little bit of trouble, but we've, we've, we've got
1: some stuff out you. Okay, and fantastic. Awesome. I've just walked into the Grand Heritage Building that houses a place called The Treasury in Thames. In fact, it is one of 18 Carnegie libraries built in the late 19th century in New Zealand by famous Scottish-American businessman and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. Today, it houses the rich historical records of the Thames region, I've been given access to a range of files. And importantly for me, this includes hundreds of pages of documents relating to Heidi and Urban's case. And in particular, a selection of handwritten statements and notes by John Cassidy covering his sighting of the couple in Crosby's clearing and the subsequent search and rescue operation.
3: You are, allowed, uh,
4: you are able to take photos or do some copying and okay. send PDFs if you want to. Thank you, thank you. And yeah. Graham, how are you? Good to see Good, good. Okay. Right, what have we got here? Well, this is John Cassidy's stuff. <clears throat> this is just some other stuff they got out for you, but it's pretty much what... It just talks about... Okay. The police station didn't change to to the new one because of the Swedish inquiry, but nothing to do with the inquiry itself. Did that's you get hold of Jason? I not yet. Been? I've got a list of people to contact at oh, the moment. Okay. So yeah, that's cool. and that's here just. Oh, that's, cool. That's the same thing as. Oh, what you got. Yep. Yeah. So you don't want to, may not want to bother. Oh, with still, that. It's all. It's all good though. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the two relevant ones. There's newspaper articles in there, that one. That one's... I don't know if they're much in there, but... Tim Star and... No <coughs> they've marked some in there that talk about it. Yeah. But these are the main things you would probably be interested so in. So these papers are long gone now, are they? Yeah. Yeah, OK. Yeah. So... Yeah, but there's a hell of, all of a lot of reading. Oh, wow. You know, of, So if you sort of look through... <clears throat> so was this stuff is this all the stuff that John had hmm. when he passed and then this came yeah. here this is, what, this is all I gave them this but I just kept that other stuff that you've got yeah okay so they'll get it get that eventually yeah, this. you don't mind if I hold that for a little bit longer no is that's that okay? fine yep. <laughs> I was younger then <laughs> oh yeah 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 so that's the jacket that she had on oh, that I yeah. found yeah I had had longer hair too <laughs> Didn't realise they had those. It's been bit embarrassing, but yeah. So, oh, so what have we, we've got sort of, oh, this is the trial, trial. There's no, trial. Yeah. Um, and there's other things of sightings from other people. Okay. <clears throat> that man you hear is Graham Pearce.
1: He was the person who made the stunning discovery of Heidi's clothing and wallet up the Tararua track. You'll be hearing a lot more from him in future. But today, he's assisting me in my research at the Treasury, where he volunteers. But before we continue to delve into these files and this part of the case, let's quickly discuss a few key points. First, something I want to make clear. While it may seem like it at times, I'm not making this podcast under the belief or with the angle that I believe David Tumahedi ...is innocent. Far from it. My investigation will always seek to simply look at the evidence in this case openly and transparently. And yes, there's no denying it. Some of this doesn't require any help from me to look murky. This has always been an incredibly difficult and complicated case for both sides. But I believe that my investigation and this podcast will be the first time anyone has ever truly looked at all the facts in this case and spoken to all the witnesses in a completely unbiased manner. But until the point comes, if it ever does, that I can say that I have proof that David Tamahedi didn't murder Heidi and Urban, then he will remain guilty as charged. For me, the primary purpose of this podcast is as the title suggests, to find Heidi, not necessarily to prove anyone's guilt or innocence, but naturally, uncovering the truth will provide clues as to where she might be. And based on what I've uncovered so far, that you're yet to hear, I genuinely believe that there's a chance, after 34 years, that we might get an answer. In the last episode, I outlined the topics I'm going to cover when it comes to the crown case against Tamahidi. And I discussed in detail one of these points. The alleged breaking into her no barn Subaru by Tamahidi. And while Tamahidi insists it's possible that he did this, the Crown said it isn't and he didn't. You'll recall I asked you to make up your own mind as to the strength of each strand in this piece of circumstantial rope. This rather ambiguous evidence, in my opinion, makes this particular strand of the rope weak, and certainly not enough to hang a case on. But now, in this episode, I'm going to introduce arguably the most important piece of evidence in this case, and quite possibly the most difficult to explain, something that in some ways ruined the lives of those involved with never-ending questions of how, why, and what if. And this is the sighting of a man and a woman at Crosby's Clearing, an old, now abandoned settlement deep in the bush of the Coromandel, some four to five hours difficult tramp from the Tararoo Creek Road end where Heidi and Urban's vehicle was last seen parked before Tamahiri alleges he stole it. Just a quick note here, the word tramp or tramping. This is best described as a word for a very difficult, normally overnight hike. In New Zealand we have extremely thick forest. When Urban's brother Stefan Hogland was flown over the Coromandel bush in a helicopter during the initial search, he commented, This is not like Sweden. This is more like a jungle for us. It's cold, dense, wet, steep, muddy, and oftentimes dangerous. Tramping is not a hike through open forest. The bush in New Zealand is so thick that people get lost straying off the trail by only a few metres. Of course, it is stunningly beautiful and one of the biggest draw cards of so many adventurous tourists. So if you'll recall, the Tararu Creek Road end, where their white sabaro was seen by Harry Goodwin on Sunday 9th of April, and eventually, allegedly stolen by David Tamahedi, this was the access point to the Tararu track. A difficult tramping track used to access Crosby's Clearing. Before we start diving into all the details, I'm going to just quickly outline the Crosby's Clearing sighting so you have a clear understanding as we move forward, because there is going to be a lot to take in here. Let's jump back to the 26th of May 1989, when Heidi and Urban's car was located abandoned at the Auckland train station. This would later be discovered to have been dumped by Tamahedi after he gave Gabriel Staub a ride to Auckland after their short tiki tour of the Coromandel. The story about the missing Swedes would hit headlines that very day. And that night, Thames police contacted the head of the investigation, John Hughes, with a huge lead. An airline ticket in the name of Heidi Parkinen had been discovered at Tararoo Creek Road End. Two days later, Being the 28th of May, 1989, search teams assembled at the road end and quickly discovered the Swedes' belongings cast down the bank into the bush. Further searches up the Tararug track were fruitless. However, by chance, on May 31st, John Cassidy and Mal Knopf, who were both key members of the local search and rescue volunteer team, made a statement. That they had seen a part mouldy man and a young blonde woman in Crosby's clearing, four to five hours' tramp from the Tararoo Creek Road end where the airline tag had been found. The date they claimed to have seen this couple was Saturday, April eighth, almost eight weeks earlier. Despite the current search, it was not initially implied that this woman was in fact Heidi. The couple were simply persons of interest. And nationwide media coverage called for them to come forward and identify themselves to police. They never did. Over the following days and weeks, the sighting of a part Moldy man and blonde woman would slowly change into being a definite sighting of David Tamahedi and Heidi Parkinen in Crosby's clearing. And this was the witness sighting police sorely needed to corroborate their story that was responsible for their murders. Over the coming months, years, and decades, this sighting has been picked apart piece by piece. And as you're about to discover, all is not as straightforward as it may seem. And had it not been for one strange bit of luck, police possibly would never have even heard about this sighting, and its possible relevance to this case. That strange piece of luck was the discovery of an airline tag hanging on a fence at the end of Tararoo Creek Road, which immediately put a giant X on the map for investigators. 34 years on, I visited the site with the man who made that startling discovery.
2: Different. The fence used to be up there then,
1: you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this this used to continue right on.
2: Yeah, this is this is where It starts here. Yeah, yeah, it's all different now. Yeah, yeah. See, the main fence was just up there, you know.
1: Can we walk up up there?
2: Yeah, you can walk up a little there. Might as well. The whole thing's over overgrown. You wouldn't believe it, eh? No. Look at it, look at it. That was all the grass, that, wasn't it? unbelievable
1: yeah. prior to heading out to the site I met Eddie in a familiar location and one that has played a key role in this case the former Sunkist Hotel today known as the Lady Bowen B&B who were kind enough to allow me to use the Billiards Lounge as a makeshift interview space and it's a great B&B you should go check it out next time you're in Thames Eddie and I sat down at a low coffee table in some old period-style chairs. This hotel was built in 1868 and has been suitably furnished and maintained. And it certainly adds to the historical feeling when it comes to discussing details of a case 34 years old. Eddie's in his 70s today and is your classic New Zealand farmer come pig hunter, come bushman. Someone who cut his teeth on a good, honest, hard day's work?
2: Yeah, because because he was living up the tower all the time, mm. and he used to go from there right over into the tower into the Kauranga, you know. Because yeah. I, I used to see him quite a bit and walking up there.
1: I used to see Tamaherry. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. He was up there all the time.
1: Tell me about <laughs> um, so so yeah. You had that that big. How big was a block? The block you had through that tower or site.
2: Oh, probably about a thousand acres but there was only it was all bush there was only about 200 odd 215 grass you know yeah. it was all fuck man it's all yeah. grove and
1: yeah so you went up there that day and um, you were well, you were doing something and then you found that tag tell me about that
2: well it was just yeah I'd been hunting up there i do a lot of pig hunting you know and um, yeah I come back and I found it hanging on the fence you know and um, yeah, and I looked at it, and it was a valid airline ticket. So I thought, you know, I took it in the cops. They didn't even want to know about it, to be honest. You know, and then then a couple of weeks later, the they started looking for them, and the shit hit the fan. You know, they arrived out at home at about half past twelve, quarter to one in the morning, dragging everyone out of bed. You know, yeah, I think yeah. it was a nightmare. You know, no. so
1: you know where the um, you know, up at that <coughs> Tararua road, yep. road end, yeah, there's that. There was sort of that. Um, <coughs> car park i guess it's yeah Yep. Yeah. where did you find the airline tag because the hut's here yeah
2: on the fence hanging on that fence yeah
1: by the hut or, yeah or down by the um you know if you keep going down the end it takes the there's that little bridge to go up to crosby's
2: yeah no no it was right by the fence yeah Oh,
4: okay yeah so yeah. It, was right,
2: it was right hanging line. on the fence yeah we spent a whole day at court going over that thing at court you know Lawyer said to me, he said, where well, was the thing And I said, I oh, hang on a fence, he said, but, but specifically, which wire? I said, oh, I don't know, on the third wire. But you said it was on the fourth wire, you know, yeah. it, it, all this sort of shit. Yeah, you it know, went on for, yeah. yeah. But, you know, like, the track goes, when you go up to Crosby's, like, oh, I hunted up there all my life, you know. And um, um, it goes right away around, the track goes way right around to Lias's when you get out to Crosby's, but Tumahiri never used to use the Crosby's track. I tried to tell the police that. He, there's a what they call a big slip there. That's where they found all Heidi's possessions, you know, her coat and all that, neatly folded up on the side. You, you know about that? Yeah. 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 Well, he used to go down that slip, and then um, there's a little low ridge. There's an old pack track on it. Takes you right back up into it's a Good, easy low ridge. And he used to use that all the time to go out there. Yeah, because it was a lot... Instead of going way around like that and coming around, he used to go down and straight up. Oh, okay. and, and and in my opinion, sort of, um, he'd be keeping off the track. You know I mean? He wouldn't keep go, out of the way of Keep out of the way of people too, like, yeah. But on the Monday, mm. it was that weekend. On the Monday, that's when the Sabaru, um, Sabaru um, went... Like, when I got up the early in the, mo- in the morning to get the cattle down there, it was there. It was parked there. On the Monday? Yeah, on the Monday morning, yeah. yeah. Then then I went up, uh, made a couple of other things to do, and I come back down and it had gone. So it went on the Monday, about about lunchtime when I
1: come down. It was gone? At that it was morning. gone, yeah. It's interesting, eh? Yeah, yeah. So tell me here, he says that he was 2 o'clock or something, but you're, it was gone by then?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was gone by lunchtime, yeah. Yeah, well, a fair started, I think, about it cattle fair, you know, I really know.
1: Oh, so you had to take the cattle
2: to... I'd sent them on the truck, loaded them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they'd gone, you know. And then I went back up the hill to do a few more jobs and then i come back down. And when i come back down, it had gone.
4: Yeah.
1: In Tamahedi's initial police statement, he says he walked up Tararu Creek Road at around lunchtime and got there about quarter past two. If what Eddie's saying is correct, then that is simply not possible. On that morning, Eddie tells me he saw the Subaru parked up there early when he was getting the cattle ready for the sales. And when he returned later, sometime just before lunch, it was already gone. Eddie also mentioned a place called the Big Slip. This is an area near where Heidi's jacket and wallet were found, approximately 1.5 hours up the Tararu track. Eddie knew that Tamahedi often used a track that left the main trail and zigzagged down this big slip. And it's always been his belief that the area was never properly searched. And that's where Heidi's body will be found. Again, I'll stress that these areas are incredibly remote and difficult and dangerous to search. But naturally, I'm incredibly interested in looking into this further. And we will delve deeper into this when we get into my investigation of this case in upcoming episodes. But for now, I ask Eddie if he could show me exactly where he found the tag that day. And he readily agrees. So we jump in my Ute and drive the 10 minutes up a wet Tararoo Creek Road. At the time of Heidi and O'Ban's murders, Eddie owned a thousand acres around the area of Tararoo Creek Road End. Today, The road end is dotted with a bunch of ramshackle huts and sheds, and is largely unkept. Eddie expresses sadness that it's been let go to this degree, and pauses, shaking his head. We hop the modern fence, and continue up the old road on foot, which is now no longer used and is overgrown in grass, to where we find the old car park, and the site of his discovery.
2: This is the old road here, eh?
1: Yeah
2: This is the old road Now this is where the Sabaru was parked It was parked here, yeah Facing this way Facing
1: up Okay, facing up? Yeah, yeah So we're over here Oh, Yeah, over here,
2: yeah Somewhere
1: here. Oh, so facing like that? Yeah, facing like this. Oh, yes, it wasn't like round over there. No, 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 no. That's kind of a random spot to even put it. Yeah. Immediately, something of possible interest. The location of the vehicle. Eddie has told me that he also saw the car here over that weekend. But his evidence never made it to court. But the location he claims to have seen it parked differs slightly from what Harry Goodwin and Tamahidi have stated. Instead of it being on the right facing back down the road, Eddie says when he saw it, it was nearer the centre facing up towards the fence. There's two possibilities. Either the 34 years have clouded Eddie's memory slightly, or the car was in fact parked in two separate locations over that weekend. Which would imply it had been moved or it had visited the site more than once certainly nothing rock solid but interesting nonetheless Also oh, so when you walked up the back and then it had a for sale thing so where where did you find that airline ticket um roughly
2: um about here the fence was here
1: oh okay i see there's yeah. a fence here yeah yeah all right got you
2: yeah, fence was
1: here, yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Oh, so that was just hanging sort of around here somewhere. Yeah,
2: yeah. Actually, you know, when you said um could it have been hung there, yeah, when you think about it now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The importance of the discovery of this tag cannot be overstated. Imagine for a moment that the airline ticket wasn't there and was never found a person standing at the Tararu Creek road end looking around would have seen no evidence of the missing Swedes. Nothing. Unless they were to look over the bank down in the thick bush where the clothing was thrown by Tamahiri. Who knows when these items would have been found were it not for the airline ticket. And we're going to look into this a lot deeper later. But try to imagine how or why, it would end up hanging, all alone, on that wire fence. While flipping through old documents at the Treasury Library in Thames, I found another reason people focused on this area of Tararu Creek Road. And that would be a statement made five days after the discovery of the tag, on June 1st, 1989, by local grocery store owner Graham Manning who believed the couple came into his store in early April. He stated that they came into the shop in the evening, sometime after 5.30pm. They showed him a book of maps and asked him where Tararu Creek was and how to get there. He told them they should be going into the Kauronga Valley, another more popular camping and hiking spot on the other side of Thames but he said they were positive they wanted to go up Tararoo Creek. They saw it as a challenge. Their ambition, he said, was to go up Table Mountain and down into Karonga Valley. They said it would be easier to get a ride in than the other way. Graham says he even walked outside to speak to them further and pointed out how to get onto the road to Tararu. He noticed the car and the funny bull bar. He said the girl did most of the talking. The guy was the driver, and took more notice of where to go. Graham told them it was a two-day walk through the Tararu track. They thought they would either go through the Kauronga Valley, or back down the Caracas stream. He noted that all they purchased from the shop was energy protein food, like muesli bars, peanuts, honey, and bread. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse
0: auctioneer, which is apparently a
1: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I to get 30, 30, bet get 30, Better to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get, 20, 20 get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: to find out if it's right for you
1: Now armed with this information police had a firm reason to believe the Swedes had intended to tramp the Tararu track and from May 28th proceeded to comb the tracks and bush in the area looking for any additional evidence Involved in this search were dozens of police army and civilians and two of these civilians are John Cassidy and Mel Knopf, both senior and highly respected members of the volunteer search and rescue teams. Despite having an accurate description of Heidi since the search commenced on May 28th, neither Cassidy nor Knopf had made official mention of a part Moldy man and blonde woman they had seen eight weeks earlier on April 8th at Crosby's Clearing. I don't know what you want on. Also, well, see, yeah, I've got court files, but I don't actually have Cassidy's part, so right. it'd be interesting for me to actually see his yeah. his yeah. stuff. So, which one's this one? Oh, is this the search and rescue stuff after? Yeah. So, the thing that's interesting, so
4: Cassidy, obviously, that day they were keeping notes. Yeah. Is that that was a thing that he did comment Well, they, they'd started. Up the Cape Hickawa Road yeah. and walk from there early in the morning, walked from there through to the Carona, down through the Hehe or somewhere like that. And then they worked from the Carona up through the booms or one of those tracks yeah. and ended up at Crosby's and came out on the that what they were doing is putting their times down it took to walk for search and rescue. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. so they were doing a bit of work for that. Yeah. So if you so wanna be so yeah, yes. Yeah, this so. is his written statement. A, oh okay, Got about you about what happened. So, oh, yeah. and then, oh, then this is, yeah, okay. Sorry, so, this was
1: the, oh, yeah, this stuff's really, really crucial to me, actually. Mm, so, I
4: oh, don't
1: know what that's doing in there, but. Those are normally the golden things, the mm-hmm. things that are folded up and mm-hmm. hidden away. What is that? Time? Fine, but cloudy for most of the day, with some light rain starting while we were at the Crosbys. Mm-hmm. A little rain,
4: a little rain as we went across the open part of Crosbys little eyes this must just be about the weather yeah they said it was just starting to rain when he was putting the chance up because <clears throat> I mean you couldn't get something more useful than this when it comes to the yeah. witness sighting can yeah, you yeah
1: no.
4: there you go okay <laughs> <All> right, cool <laughs> on May 31st 1989
1: at 8am for the first time Cassidy made an official statement to police outlining this sighting this statement is incredibly important. So here, it will be read in full. To my knowledge, this is the first time these statements have been publicly heard in full unedited. Remember, this statement is being taken almost eight weeks after what was at the time an unremarkable encounter. John Cassidy was by all accounts a fantastic man. And he sadly passed away on the 30th of July 2007. His statements are being read by an actor.
5: On Saturday, 8th of April 1989, I arranged to go tramping with Mel Knopf. We are both members of the Kauranga Tramping Club and the Tame Search and Rescue Organisation. We are experienced trampers and familiar with the Coromandel Range. Our trip on the 8th was not an official club tramp. We left from the Kapu Hikoi Road Summit at 5.59am. It was our intention to walk through to the Tapu Koroglen Road Summit via Crosby's Clearing, and that is in fact what we did. The trip took us a total of 11 and three quarter hours, including stops. We had worked on the trip taking us 12 hours. We arrived at the Pines area of Crosby's Clearing at 15 20 hours, and we came across a couple whom we stopped and spoke to for 13 minutes. According to my diary, we started walking again at 15.25 hours. The couple had a tent and they indicated that they intended spending the night there. The guy actually pitched the tent while we were talking to them. He said that they had just walked in from the Tarraroo Creek Road. The guy appeared to be familiar with the general area from the way he was talking because we explained where we had come from and he seemed to understand. He spoke about some known local features. They indicated that they were from the Auckland area. The guy was in his early 30s, part Māori, about 5'11", strong build, outdoor type. Black hair, clean shaven, although he may have had a moustache. He was wearing boots of some kind, denim shorts, and I think a dark top. The girl that was with him was in her mid to late 20s, European, she had light blonde hair straight to the collar, She was seated on a piece of log or something when we arrived and she did not stand or in fact say anything while we were there. She had a fair complexion and well-groomed appearance to the extent that she looked out of place in the bush setting. She was wearing a green shade of cape draped over her shoulders and it covered most of her. Light rain started falling while we were there. The tent which the guy was pitching was a bright blue hiker's tent with sewn-in floor and blue matching fly sheet. He'd obviously had experience of pitching the tent before. I think from the conversation we had, the couple intended to return to Tatteru Creek Road the same way they had come up, because I presume they would have left their car there. The couple both had packs, but I can't recall just what they looked like. The only other people we saw that day in the bush were a group of young people down in the Karunga Valley, but we did not stop to talk to them. There were half a dozen tents there, and it looked like a group of scouts or boys brigade. The weather for most of that day was fine, but cloudy and warm, except at Crosby's Clearing where some light rain fell. We got the impression that the couple were only going to stay over one night and then return to the Tarahoo Creek Road. Signed by me. John Cassidy.
1: Remember, at the time this statement is made, on May 31st, Tamahiri was not on the police's radar. The clothing wouldn't be discovered in his home by detectives until July 10th. And Tamahiri wouldn't be officially questioned in relation to the missing Swedes until July 11th. And it is on this day being Tuesday July 11th 1989 that John Cassidy is called in to make a second statement by Detective Burr which I was able to locate at the Treasury and reads
5: I am making this statement to Detective Burr further to the one I made to Detective Sergeant Reed on May 31st I can't really add much more to the descriptions I have already given except in relation to the guy he was an outdoor strong looking type his hair was medium length, quite tidy. I'm not sure if he was part Maori or not, but he was certainly swarthy. In relation to the girl, she did have brown boots or tan, similar to Paraflex with a rubber sole. She certainly looked out of place, but she did not appear tired as if they had only just got there. She didn't say a word the whole time we were there. I've been shown some color photographs of the missing Swedish girl and the one I saw was thinner in the face than her. Her hair was shorter than the photo but I would say it was about as blonde. I don't know whether it was in conversation or not but I got the impression that they might have come from Papakura. The guy had a jacket or shirt which was very short sleeved and I think had a blue and black check or squares. I'm not sure but... He may have had a watch with a black strap.
1: In this second statement, Cassidy is quite genuine in saying he can't really add anything further to his description. However, here he does add a couple of new points. He now recalls she wore brown boots with a rubber sole. He says that he wasn't sure if the man was part mouldy or not, but that he was definitely swarthy, which means of dark complexion. By now, Cassidy has seen colour photographs and seems to believe that the girl he saw in the clearing had a thinner face and shorter hair, although about as blonde. He seems to be implying that it wasn't Heidi. I want to add here that I don't have the official statements of Mel Knopf, who was tramping with John Cassidy. I made an official Information Act request for these, but was denied on grounds of Tamahedi's upcoming appeal and what I was told might prejudice the maintenance of the law. It concerns me that my podcast might be prejudicial in a judge-alone appeal, but nonetheless, I don't have Mel's statements. I do have a majority of important statements and documents in this case, but for some, I only have secondary sources. And I've discovered that these secondary sources, including popular books written on this case, have cherry-picked or edited some statements in a manner that fits their narrative. As such, I can't trust their accuracy. So at least for now, I'm going to focus only on Cassidy's evidence. But I will say that Melnoff's descriptions of this event were similar in nature. But he was also equally unsure. The day after this statement was taken, being July twelfth, Cassidy was asked to see if he could identify the man he saw in the clearing from a selection of photographs. Included in this lineup was a photo of a bearded David Tamahedi. Cassidy could not identify the man he saw. However, a few days later, he was shown a group of photographs of bush scenery, and he recalls this in a July 27th statement. He says he was looking through the photos, and he saw one showing the head and shoulders of a man standing outside. This man he recognized as the person he had seen at Crosby's Clearing. He states there was no writing to indicate who this was on the photo. He stated the photograph showed the man clean-shaven as he was when he saw him at Crosby's. On July 26th, Tamahedi was due to appear in the Thames District Court for charges related to the theft of Heidi and Urban Sabaru. Detective Inspector John Hughes requested Cassidy and Knopf visit the courthouse to see if they could identify the person they had seen at Crosby's clearing. When they visited the courthouse, there was a media frenzy as Tamahedi was led into the building, and after seeing him in court, Cassidy states that he is now positive that it's the man he saw at Crosby's clearing. Of course, this type of identification is fraught with issues due to the obvious fact it contaminates the witness. They've made their positive identification not out of a lineup but in a highly prejudicial situation, being Tamahedi on charges related to the theft of the vehicle, with reporters shouting questions about the missing Swedes. Of course, this doesn't mean that it wasn't Tamahedi they saw in Crosby's clearing, but simply that this manner of ID of a suspect would be considered not procedurally or legally ideal. But all of this would culminate in Cassidy's further statements to police and eventual evidence given in trial. If you'll recall, the original statement was relatively straightforward and scant on specific details. Now, after constant police pressure and questioning, new facts have come forward. While searching through documents, I discovered an interesting series of handwritten pages, which when compared appear to be in John Cassidy's own hand. In it, he outlines the Crosby sighting in semi-bullet points. He refers to the man as the defendant, so it's possible these notes may have been made in preparation for depositions. I can't say for sure, but I believe this series of pages came directly from John's own collection and hasn't been viewed by anyone investigating this case other than myself. It is not dated or signed,
5: and simply starts at Crosby's. Heard thumping noise, thought chopping wood. Called out a few yards back in trees so as not to startle. Man, defendant, and woman at campsite. Woman sitting on mound of dirt. Man clearing bumps off ground, thumping noise prior to pitching tent. He was using a small machete or axe, not more than 15 inches long, in his right hand. The man was dark and had a swarthy complexion. He may have had one day's growth but did not have a beard. He was of strong build. I first thought he was about 5 foot 11 tall. He was wearing heavy thick-soled boots and socks. He had blue denim shorts with pockets. He had a blue and black check sleeveless top garment. The checks were about two inches square. I think it was a woolen garment, similar to a bush shirt material or swan dry. He had a large pack. I think it was blue. He pitched a tent while we were there. The tent was blue. It had collapsible rods that slipped through portions of the tent to support it. The rods were shiny black. There were two or more. The rods did not go diagonally across the tent. The tent had a tent fly. I thought it was blue. He did not put the fly on the tent while we were there that I remember. The girl, a young woman, sat on a mound of dirt that was there. She was wearing a poncho. The hood was pulled onto her head and was well forward on her face. The poncho was olive green, perhaps a bit lighter. It was not new but appeared to have had considerable use. The poncho had provision for the hands to come through because I could see her hands. They were held uh, or clasped on her lap while we were there. The woman was wearing light tan or beige colored boots. They were rubber-soled and looked like Paraflex brand. I have a pair myself and they looked similar. I took particular notice of her boots. They were in very good condition not scuffed or marked very much. The poncho was draped over the girl's legs which were out in front of her. It was about 4 inches short of her boot tops and I could see she was wearing black long trousers of some sort. They did not have very wide cuffs. I did not see her socks or any part of ankles or legs. On the left side only of her face I could see that she had light blonde or honey blonde hair of shoulder length. She did not speak one word to anyone while we were there. She did not move her position while we were there. She sat quite erect and gave me the impression that she was posing, although I don't think that was her intention. She was not sitting in a natural manner. By that I mean she would not have seemed to be in a natural manner if she had sat the same in any other place or situation. She reminded me of a female modeling fashion clothes where their stance and movements are accentuated. Although she did not move much, this was the impression that I got. She seemed uneasy we were there. It seemed odd that she did not speak, at least to her companion. She appeared to have applied makeup to her face not many hours before we saw her, certainly at some time that day. She was attractive, and I would put her age at early to mid-twenties. It seemed unusual that she sat there and made no attempt to help her companion with the tent, or to open her pack or do anything to establish camp. Even a novice tramper would more than likely want to do something more than the girl was doing. The couple did not look as if they had just arrived after a long walk, but appeared to have stopped or rested prior to us meeting them. When the defendant had erected the tent, we remarked that it seemed to be a very good tent. He invited us to look inside it and I was surprised at how roomy it was inside and remarked about it. There was a pack which I took to belong to the girl, lying on the ground near her on the far side from me. It was medium size and was colored dark green or olive green. The pack was face up and was not open, it did not appear to have an external frame.
1: I want to make a specific point of saying that I'm not for a second implying that Cassidy or NALF have knowingly falsified evidence, but it's quite glaring how much Cassidy's statement has grown over time. I believe this has been through a slow process of clever police questioning and pressure. Imagine you're the key witnesses in a horrific murder trial, and the police who you have a great deal of respect for, are desperate to catch who they believe is the man responsible. You're then being questioned, again and again, about the same, rather unremarkable incident that occurred months earlier. And so it happens that where Cassidy had initially stated he saw packs, but couldn't remember the details, now he could recall that her pack was green, matching Heidi's known pack, and that his was blue. Also, he now recalled the man using a small machete or axe to pound the grass. It had become known that Tamahiri also carried a small axe. The woman's age had changed slightly, from mid to late 20s, to mid to early 20s and details about the type of tent they saw now happened to match quite specifically the type of tent Tamahiri used. Cassidy also went on to make a further statement on the 30th of November 1989, stating that he had only ever seen a tent in that particular spot at Crosby's Clearing once before. Now, he recalled that he had in fact met Tamahiri on another occasion, albeit two years earlier, and that on that occasion, Hetty was camping in the exact same spot. Something Cassidy had failed to remember in the previous six months. Now I want to make it clear. These additions don't automatically make this sighting at Crosby's Clearing not credible. It's possible that Cassidy and Knopf did genuinely just recall all the accurate details over time but I think it's fair to accept that it is highly unlikely. And it's more likely that these subtle details have not been intentionally, but almost subliminally, embedded over time. So the question left for the jury and everyone else, who was it at Crosby's clearing that day? According to Cassidy and Knopf, after initially not recognizing a bearded Tamaheri in a photo lineup, once they saw him in the flesh without the beard, they were unequivocal. The man they saw was David Wayne Tamaheri, a man that was extremely familiar with this area and someone who was known to often camp at the remote Crosby's Clearing. So, who then was the woman? Police would contend. That she simply must have been Heidi Parkinen. And at first glance, that would seem to be the obvious conclusion. She was wearing a green poncho that matched the type used by the Swedes. But it must be said that neither Mel or John Cassidy ever stated that the woman they saw was Heidi. And when looking at their evidence, there are a few key points that don't quite stack up. The first being, if Heidi was in some type of trouble, why wouldn't she use this golden opportunity to alert the two fit and able trampers Cassidy and Knopf? Surely she wouldn't simply sit and say nothing. Police would call an expert witness in the trial who would propose that Heidi was in such a state of shock perhaps from witnessing a terrible act, that she was simply frozen in fear and couldn't respond. Maybe. Personally, I find this difficult to believe. But it is a known phenomenon, so it can't be ruled out entirely. The second point, Knopf and Cassidy both claimed that the woman was wearing a lot of makeup and had her nails painted. This description is in stark contrast to Heidi's personality as someone who didn't wear makeup often and certainly wouldn't be applying it under normal circumstances when she goes hiking. Police would have you believe that Tamahiri had forced her to apply this makeup, perhaps for some personal gratification. The next thing, her hair. A lot has been made about the fact that due to the hood of the poncho being pulled high over her head, it was difficult to see how long her hair really was. If it is true that Heidi and Urban had their hair cut in Thames on April 7th, then her hair would not have hung to shoulder length as described by Cassidy, as the woman that cut her hair, Marilyn Round, stated that she cut her hair just above the ears. The possible length of the woman's hair has been analysed to death. But consider this. You see a person in light rain with a poncho pulled completely up over their head. Think about how that might look. Now consider that this is not a remarkable event at the time. It's just a couple you've met setting up their camp. Now imagine not even thinking about that moment for two months. And then being asked to describe how much of her hair was showing out the side of the poncho over her head. Is it just above the ears? Or down to her collar? The difference of a couple inches, but all the difference in the case. I find it completely implausible that a person could accurately recall a detail like this many months after the fact. Another point to note is Cassidy's description of the woman wearing light brown beige-coloured boots. He specifically notes a comparison to a Paraflex-style boot as he owns a pair. This is something I can trust more reliably as he actually makes a direct connection to himself cementing that memory. He also noted that the boots looked very new and unscuffed. So did Heidi own a pair of boots that matched this description? The reality is, no one knows. But she was never seen in any photos from their New Zealand trip wearing a pair that matches this description. But it's also possible she may have purchased a new pair of boots and we just don't know. But when we start to combine a few of these points I've mentioned, like the wearing of the makeup and nail polish, Cassidy's recollection of the girl being thinner in the face than Heidi, the boots, and the fact she didn't seek help, we need to start asking questions. And we will. This has been an incredibly difficult episode to put together. I could make an entire 10-part podcast focused only on the sighting at Crosby's Clearing. That's how much detail there is. But I've tried to compress it down to the basics in this one episode. However, it certainly won't be the last you're going to hear of it. In future episodes, we're going to delve further into this sighting and speak to other witnesses that were in Crosby's clearing around that time and what they saw. I want the takeaway of this episode to be that John Cassidy and Mel Knopf were good, honest Kiwi blokes who happened to stumble into one seemingly innocuous scene and forever had their lives turned upside down. John Cassidy spent the rest of his life searching the mountains and valleys of that thick bush in the hope that he could finally find an answer. And I've been told Mel Knopf was never the same man after the murder of Heidi and Oban. I spoke to a friend of Cassidy's who described a good man tormented by questions and his own feelings of guilt that if it was Heidi, they saw that day, then they let her down. What if they'd done this? What if they'd done that? And then that one nagging question, could they have saved her?
3: He used to speak for hours on end, but it was, Mostly um, retracing his steps, and what if we'd done this, and what if we've done that? Cass was a bushman. His his recreation was to go for an afternoon walk for six hours up in the hills, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he had a dog, and he always took his dog with him. And th- he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just um, it could just consume them. Cities here are rather different from the cities at home. There's not any high houses, and we haven't seen one single boring block of apartments. Most of them seem to live in villas, even in Auckland. The city is bigger, and there are more shops. Marika, how did you celebrate Valentine's Day? The shops here in New Zealand seem to earn good money on this day. They have a lot of signs with hearts on them in almost all the windows, and on the radio they are talking about it all the time that you are supposed to buy a flower for someone that you like a lot Heidi
1: Guilt is a Brevity Studios production written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe all opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that opinions and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself all persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law voice acting in this episode Jacob Masters as John Cassidy and Anna Waddell as Heidi you'll find further photos and video on my Instagram RyanWolfNZ and I highly recommend you join the discussion with over a thousand other guilt listeners on Facebook at the guilt podcast discussion group guilt is a 100% independent production we have never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding you can support us to continue to make great content plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI.